Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Today we are speaking with Anna von der Kershove, who is a lecturer and holds a chair in the history of Christianity, ancient Christianity, and patristic theology at Paris at the Institut Protestant de Théologie. Anna, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with the Schwepp. The reason we wanted to speak with you is because you have been doing interesting work on the Corpus Hermeticum and the Hermetica, one of the major voices reopening the debate about the Hermetic way or the the religious practices, way of life that may have lain behind the texts in the Hermetica. So, first of all, if you had to introduce the Corpus Hermeticum to your first-year students in your class on Hermetica, how would you do it? What is the Corpus Hermeticum? Thank you very much for allowing me to speak about uh, Hermetic text. First of all, if I have to introduce uh, this text to my students, I will uh, present the Hermetic text as uh, being related to a the major figure of Hermes Trismegist is the main figure of this text. So um, a hermetic text is a text where Hermes Trismegist plays important role within the text. So there might be ancient hermetic texts as there could be modern hermetic texts. So it's a very a fl- fluid category. Another important aspect of this text is um, the place of uh, Asclepius Tat, ancient Tot, Tot ancient uh, Egyptian uh, god Tot. And the uh, third aspect is uh, the dialogue. The, most of these texts are dialogue between a master and a disciple. The first master is Hermes, and the, the disciple are Asclepius Tat, or over of our disciple. And if Hermes is not the master in some text, is always as a background. Okay. So we have some hermetic texts where the master is uh, Asclepius uh, or Isis, but both of them are related to Hermes Trismegistus. So Hermes is really... Uh, really the, the, um, the basis of these, uh, of these texts. Okay. So any text in which Hermes is the main character, as it were, and you have a, a master-disciple dialogue form going on. I'm sure we will return to that form when we get to practice and the, the idea of religious teaching. But what about the corpus hermeticum? Right, because we have this very, very important, very influential collection of these texts. And what can you tell us about this specific corpus? The corpus is a, a recent construction during the Renaissance, the end of the Middle Ages. We have the first real historical attestation of this corpus uh, during the 15th and the 16th centuries. But uh, Jean-Pierre Maé suggests that the corpus is older and some part of it may be um, fabricated. Uh, Michel Psellus, 
very uh, important uh, Byzantine uh, scholar in the 11th century. But it's very difficult to go beyond Seleus. So um, it, it may be the offer of the most part of the corpus as we have it today. However, by studying some uh, manuscripts, some of them being in uh, Oxford, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and some uh, attestation in other manuscripts, I think that before Michel, Michel Psellus, and even in really at the end of the antiquity, there exists already some micro-hermetic corpus of some uh, four or five hermetic texts. Okay. So not a corpus as we have it actually, but some kind of corpus before, some kind of collection before uh, Michel Psellus uh, during, maybe during the fourth century, I think we can hypothesize uh, the existence of a small collection of hermetic texts. Because if we uh, study how some uh, authors, in particular Christian authors, quote some texts, even if they can quote a text because they have read it in another Christian author, we can see that some texts go together. So are we talking about people like Lactantius who are, who are citing Hermes as um, a pre-Christian revelation of Christianity? Yes, yeah. Lactantius, Augustine, uh, there is some, uh, maybe some attestation also in uh, Didymus, but also John uh, Stobaeus, the work of uh, John Stobaeus I think it's possible only if there is already a collection, either of hermetic texts or of um, hermetic sentence nomai. I don't know how the form, the literal form of this uh, collection. There there is some hermetic collection. Okay. And even in uh, hermetic texts, these texts speak of other collection as the genikoi logoi, so some collection, hermetic collection, might exist. All right. Thank you for that. To, to recap, tell me if I've got this right. These texts are generally dated to the second or third century, no one quite knows, um, mm. from Egypt. They probably have been collected sometime in late antiquity um, into perhaps into smaller groupings like the hermetic sententiae, the hermetic... Genicologoi, etc. There were at least some anthologies going around, and we know this, or we can assume this from the way that they're cited by other authors. On the one hand, Christian patristic writers who like to use Hermes as a non-Christian authority for Christianity, and Mm. the important collection of Stobias, which is a kind of late antique uh, Florilegium, it's a late antique anthology of lots of interesting stuff that was about. These Stobian fragments are very important for our interpretation of the corpus. Then we have this thing called the Corpus Hermeticum, which is a yes. big collection of 17 hermetic texts. Usually added to that is this other Latin text called Asclepius. And that's mm. the one that came to Florence, was translated by Marsilio Ficino, and the rest is history. Mm. 
Yeah. So exactly. we have that Corpus Hermeticum, but we can look back to late antique evidence and think, okay, this Corpus Hermeticum somehow had earlier analogs of some mm -hmm. kind. Now, here is a question for you. Let's talk about the old distinction of philosophic versus practical hermetica. And I'd like to know what your take is on this. Um, just to set the stage, if I may, there is a long tradition of literature coming under the name of Hermes in Egypt. In fact, one of our earliest astrological texts, which we no longer have, but we know existed, is the so-called Hermes text. So between Hermes and Nechepso Petosiris, you have basically the foundation of Hellenistic astrology in Egypt. So that's Hermetica of some kind. And for a long time in the scholarship, people looked at the Corpus Hermeticum and said, well, these things are kind of philosophical in some way. That's very different from this technical literature. So we're going to talk about technical and philosophical Hermetica as two different genres. What's your take on this? I think we cannot deny that there is some uh, difference uh, between what we call technical hermetica and philosophical hermetica. If we put side by side these uh, two kinds of texts, very many differences. Technical uh, hermetica are really uh, practical with how to uh, to do some uh, receipts, how to do some uh, uh, astrological uh, divination, and so on. On the contrary, uh, when we read uh, so-called philosophical hermetica, all these practical receipts, uh, divinations, and so on, uh, are on the background. They are not so evident. So I think there is a really difference between these two kinds of hermetic texts. However, it doesn't mean that they uh, belong to different groups. I think if hermetic group exists, uh, it's my hypothesis that such of group exists. But this group can use these two and other kind of different texts because the, the mean of these texts are different. Like everyone today can have a, a book of receipts and a book of the science of cooking. So right. we can have the two books, two kinds of books within our own library. So uh, why not for the emetic uh, group? And if we read the philosophical uh, text, emetic text, we can see that at the background of some of them, there is some uh, astrological themes and some magical, if we can speak of magical themes, and some also some kind of receipts, but it's not the main uh, topic. Mm. They do not discuss this because it is for other texts. So the two kinds are different, but go uh, side by side and are complement to one another. Right, so you have theoretical... It's only and... my hypothesis, but... Right, I can, I can see... It. So to me, that seems perfectly natural. You can even see this in the output of a given author of antiquity. For example, um, someone like Proclus, he'll write yes. extremely dry scholastic metaphysical works like the Elements of Theology. And then he'll write other works where he's talking about 
revelations of the Chaldean oracles and getting in talking about Orpheus and and Zeus and Athena and Hermes and you you wouldn't necessarily think these could even be by the same author but they are he's just writing in different genre um and exactly okay so that as a thought experiment we have no problem believing that um the philosophic hermetics whoever they were could have also been doing astrology and in fact there's no problem from within a platonizing Hellenistic worldview doing astrology. It, it makes perfect sense to do astrology because that's the kind of cosmos you live in. So astrology is a very good practical way of dealing with the cosmos you're in, right? But before we get to that, um, I'm sort of alluding to the worldview behind these texts, but I would love to get your perspective on this. So it's a very common, it's almost a cliche, but cliches are usually cliches because they're, they're true in some way, that the the philosophical hermetica have a worldview which is can be described loosely as uh, middle platonist or middle platonizing moyen platonizant i guess that tells us a little bit but it doesn't tell us that much it'd be nice to get into more about the teachings that we can find in these texts um but before we do that i'd like to ask you to what degree do you think the corpus hermeticum as we have it has a unified worldview because this is a question. Some people say, no, there's a bunch of different texts. They some, so there's this classic distinction between the sort of dualist hermetica and the monist hermetica. Some are, have this kind of pro-cosmic, some have a kind of anti-cosmic worldview. The anti-cosmic ones are Gnostic and, you know, this sort of thing. But I know there's a lot of pushback in current scholarship against this reading. What What's your take on this? I think it's too simple to speak of uh, dualistic text and uh, monistic text and so on. I'm very uncomfortable with all these categories. But if we read a, a single text, we can see this, pages, this uh, passage is dualistic and the other one just after is monist. monist. So I think it doesn't work, okay. uh, actually. And perhaps I'm wrong, but... I think the contradiction we, uh, modern, we see in this text, maybe the ancients do not see them as contradiction. Mm. And there I, am, I follow the idea of uh, Pierrado. I'm very influenced by uh, the French scholar Pierrado, who says that uh, what we call a contradiction are not contradiction for the ancient. In fact, when we read each text, we have to, at nearly every sentence, passage, ask what is the point of view, what is the perspective of the author at this moment in the text is writing. Okay. And this point of view can change within the text, along the text, and so he will not say exactly the same thing uh, at the end or at the beginning because the point of view has changed. So it's not a monolithic point of view. It's very, I, uh, maybe fluid, but I don't know if it's a good word. Uh, that the point of view changes, well, it probably changes in a number of different ways, a number of different registers, but it, it struck me that when dealing with any Platonist writing, the point of view changes often depending on the level of ontology that's being discussed. 
Exactly. I, I think it's the same for the hermetic text. When they speak, I give an, an example about the world and God. When we speak of the about the world and we compare it to God, the world can only be bad. Right. Like it, because God is the only one to be good. So the world is bad when it's compared with God. But when we speak about the world within the world for the uh, men and women living on it, there the discussion, the description of the world can be more positive because it's to, to say to the people to take care of the world. So it's why I say of the, the point of view we can change uh, on the text. Hmm. It depends on the context where, what we compare. Right. What, so. Thank you for, for that. I, I find that a very helpful way of reading. Um, so what, assuming there is some kind of unifying ideological content to the, the, the Hermetica as we have them, what is it? What are, what are the teachings of the Hermetica? Obviously, you can't really yeah. do this topic justice in a bunch of sound bites in a short way, but do your best. So um, there is some very large unified view that there is the real God is unique. There is one and unique real God. There can be some other gods, but on lesser level. And it doesn't matter at this time. Uh, we can see Neoplatonists or Middle Platonists. We have the same thing. But even in uh, um, in Christian groups, uh, we can read the uh, origin. We speak of God and the second God. So uh, the, the term God is very um, diverse, and but there is only one real God. Right. And the other are on lesser level. I think that it's uh, a common view in the Hermetic text. A second common view is that the human being has a sort of uh, divine part, and uh, with this divine part, he has to try to return to this uh, real God or divine world. So all the Hermetic text is how human being, each human being, can go back to uh, the divine. Now, is, the, is this God, this unique highest God, to be identified as a noose or not? Because the noose is very important in some hermetic texts. Yes. Other hermetic texts want to be more apophatic about God mm. and say God is beyond middle Platonist, highly apophatic middle Platonist approach to God, where we cannot know him, we cannot apprehend him, he is beyond the ken of humanity. What do you think about this? Because later on, the, the move that Plotinus makes and his followers, they systematize it. They say, okay, the, the highest reality just isn't a noose. There is a noose, but it's the first being. It's um, a lower reality. The noose is a higher reality in many Hermetic texts, but not in all the texts. And I imagine, I hypothesize, uh, the Hermetic's and the Hermetic writings as being divided 
we can distinguish between different emetic trends. And in one emetic trends, uh, the higher re reality is described as the noose, as in some philosophical schools, uh, groups at the same uh, time. But in other trends, it's more hypophatic God and less, less noose. Okay. I think we have to distinguish, uh, distinguish between different trends. Okay. So, so the hermetic movement, or let's say the, um, the, the, the milieu out of which our texts come is not a monolithic orthodoxy with a, with a, a credo, and they all agree. No. Okay. I think there is no credo, and I think... It's only how I view the Hermetic text and the Hermetic groups, if they exist. But uh, it's like some groups of people who can meet together, I don't know, once a week, once a month, but who participate to other uh, religious communities, groups, the rest of the time. I think... Maybe some of them could be Christian, some of them could be Platonist, some of them could be philosopher, but no Platonist. Uh, uh, some of them could be, why not, uh, some Jews. Mm. And they met in some hermetic groups uh, to... Uh, around some uh, practice and and so on, I don't know if I can can say it uh, in this uh, postcard, but in more um, public uh, conference, I sometimes compare with the Freemasons, ah. and I imagine it's like it's really speculation, but I speculate that's why not the hermetic groups can be some like of uh, free mention with different different rules and yep. different kind of peoples. Okay. So, I, I like it. I like the model. Um, let's get back to what you what makes them all hermetic, though. Also, from what you're saying, we could maybe liken this activity to the way some people theorize the activities of Valentinians and... Sethians and and other groups that are generally called Gnostics. They're Christians, mostly, probably. They're going to church. They're part of a larger ecclesia. They're part of a community. But they have these little study groups where they get together and they read this more abstruse, metaphysical, um, speculative stuff. Yes. And another similarity here between, say, Valentinus and the Hermetica is this idea of the divine element in the human being, which needs to be brought back to God. Now, before we move on, because I, I can feel the conversation tugging in the direction of practice and of practical hermetism. Before we move on, though, what do, what do we know about the nature of this divine spark, this divine aspect in humanity? I think there is no specificity okay. about this divine spark in hermetic texts. What is specific in the hermetic text is the, the importance Mayor rule uh, given to Hermes as Hermes Trismegist, as a guide to go to uh, God. 
but how they imagine uh, they speak about the divine spark is not different uh, of what we can read in other uh, texts, either philosophical texts or some Gnostic, if we can use this term, of uh, in other Gnostic texts. It's the news. In other texts, it can be uh, only um, the spirits. They do not really speculate and they do not uh, spend most of the time uh, to speak about the divine spark. There is one, and after, it's how what we can do with this, this divine spark in order to it to go back to the divine. Right. Well, let's get to the road back to the divine then. The practice, the, the practical side of the Hermetica. You've already said that you, you're theorizing hermetic small groupings of people with, I like the lodge idea. I suppose it could be just like some of the early Christians. It could just be like a, a small room above a shop or perhaps they had some really nice lodges as well, especially in Egypt. Maybe they could be meeting in old temples, you know. But what is your theory of the hermetic movement in antiquity, late antiquity? What do you think they were doing? Uh, I think they will develop at a higher level the idea that the relation between a master and a disciple, I think, it's very important. And it's the way to go back to, to God. So they, they think, it's my hypothesis, uh, they think that this uh, relation is the main manner to go back to, to God. So I think it's uh, the basic practice, the most important practice, uh, ritual practice, is um, the dialogue between a master and the, the disciples. I think it's very uh, important for them, and it's why Hermes Trismegistus is very important, because of his logos. The logos is not only the word we speak, but it's also the Logos in its uh, stoic signification. The Logos is very important. It's the wind, world, and uh, a spiritual um, phenomenon. Right. So, so it's, it infused the disciples. When they heard their master, they not only hear the master, the words of the master, but they are infused by his uh, logos. Right, so it's some kind of transformative spiritual Yes, experience. very performative uh, uh, dialogue. I'm wondering, when I read some of the Hermetica, not all, but some, and I, I'm not alone in this reading, I know, some of them seem as though they might be, let's say, quasi-liturgical, that they are actually a kind of script, a kind of performative dialogue that... You also find this in Freemasonry, incidentally, where you have the teacher actually speaking the lines of Hermes. The teacher is Hermes in this ritual context, and the disciple has has lines to say as well. And the teacher says, da-da-da-da-da, some logos, and then the disciple says, but da-da-da-da-da, and then he says, ah, but da-da-da-da-da. And then this interchange might have actually been played out as a kind of ritualized exchange. Yes, I think you are totally right. 
uh, when I read many times uh, hermetic texts uh, for my uh, PhD, I was really struck by this performative writing of the text with um, uh, some part of the, the dialogue where only the master speaks and just after, especially when the topic is very important, there is uh, some uh, little phrase sentence from the disciple and the master and I, I put my attention to the name. When Hermes addressed his disciple by his name or only by uh, Technon, so uh, my child and so on. And I, I realized that when the name is given, it's nearly always at a very important part of the dialogue. And the reader is invited to, uh, to take place of the, of the disciple and to be uh, infused by the logos of the Hermes, because at this time, most of the reading was not uh, always allowed, but it was not a mental reading. So there is always... Yeah. People people read aloud as a... read at the time. Yeah, as a matter of course, stuff was read aloud. So there's this idea that we get in German scholarship, Les Mysterien, that there was a kind of reading initiation, certain kinds of literature are meant to be this, but you're, you're postulating that this was really performed with groups. It wasn't just one person sitting alone reading no, yes. hermetic texts. Yes, I think there is, uh, we can speak of Mysterium Gemeinde as uh, Richard Rajenstein has, uh, has done, but this reading, this performative reading is made within uh, a group. The master is so important within the text. I cannot think that a person alone in his uh, house can say, yes, I can read uh, by myself all the texts and I will be, uh, I will become an hermetist and I will be safe. For me, it's, it's not possible. It, and in the history of religion, we see that in antiquity, even many of the ritual practices are made within groups, even if are very tiny groups, but there is groups yeah. of at least three, four person, it's sufficient. Uh, Even in, in, the, in the magical magical papyri, there are yes. solitary practices, but they're, they're outnumbered by practices where you at least have, say, the operator, the client who comes mm. to get something done, perhaps a medium as well, like a young boy or whatever, who's, who's going to be. So at least three people, maybe two. But uh, it's very rare to have just do this on your own by yourself. It does exist, but yeah. It's not the norm. Yes, very rare. And it's not the same thing as in the hermetic text. It's not the, for the same topic. So uh, yeah. it, it will be difficult to compare for this topic, the hermetic text, and some of uh, the magical uh, papyri uh, okay. Egyptian. Well, th thank you so much for beginning to draw the outlines around a plausible reconstruction of, of the spiritual movement that lay behind the hermetica. Much appreciated. Perhaps it's time to call things to a close. So I will just say, stay esoteric. Thank you very much. <laughs>